Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats. Welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. For today's episode, we're going to feature a live panel discussion hosted by End Beyond to discuss the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on conservation in Africa. The discussion is hosted by ecotourism, environmental education, and community development specialist, Sue Snayman. Panelists include Varian Temple from End Beyond Pinder Private Game Reserve, Drew McVeigh, East Africa Wildlife Crime Technical Advisor for WWF International, Game Rangers Association of Africa, Executive Committee Member Chris Gallier, Fran Reed, Global Media Manager for African Parks, and Tessa Hempson, Program Manager and Principal Scientist for Oceans Without Borders. The panelists will discuss how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected Africa's game reserves and the communities that live around them. Speaking about the economics of conservation and how best to care for the continent's biodiversity while balancing the needs of its rural population. Questions posed by viewers will be addressed at the end. Welcome everyone. Um, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you may be in the world. Uh, thank you very much for joining us um, on this webinar, which is all going to be about what is COVID's impact on conservation in Africa? A really topical topic at the moment and something that uh, there are a lot of questions going around with, a lot of fake news, a lot of facts that haven't been proven and obviously everything's quite new even though it has been a few months now so we have a really excellent panel of experts who are going to run us through um, what's happening in their parts of the world in relation to this specifically giving us some facts and figures just in terms of questions and answers what we're going to do is be running through discussions and chats with all the panelists and then we will do the Q&A at the end um, but thank you again for joining us and we'll move straight into our first panelist who is Bariam Tembu who is the Anbion Pinda Private Game Reserve Habitat Manager. Barry's been at Pinda for many, many years. He started as a, a trainee butler many years ago, then moved on to becoming a guide, very passionate about conservation, and um, is now the Habitat Manager um, responsible for um, all the conservation um, aspects of Pinda. Welcome, Barry. Good afternoon to you, and good, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for welcoming me into this webinar. Barry, what impact has COVID had on managing conservation, specifically in a private reserve? Um, we're hearing a lot about government reserves, but what has your experience been in um, Pinda? Yeah, this pandemic caught us with our pants down when nobody was actually expecting anything like that to happen. Um, so to say, it's it's been a challenge since the pandemic came through, where we look at the loss of revenue, because we as Pinda as a private game reserve, most of our resources or revenue are only dependent on guests. And now without any guests coming in, that means all that revenue stream were knocked out of the picture. So it's it's really been a challenge on us uh, in keeping and, and maintaining the uh, the property. Um, a lot a lot happened, uh, Sue. Um, we're looking at quite a lot of things where, again, as I've mentioned, Pinda being a private game reserve, a lot of our revenue streams comes from um, tourism funding where also a lot of our, our revenue stream comes from Munyawana conservation fees uh, in such a way that we have, uh, or we as a Munyawana, um, we always make on annual basis about uh, 2.7 million rand in uh, the Munyawana conservation levies fees, or let me say 30, about 30 or 40% of the, of, the, of the conservation levies. 
And all of that has dried up. And now the question was, how are we going to get on around this property? As there's no revenue stream that has been coming. Um, donor funding dried up as well a little bit because nobody was interested to, to put his money into a project, not knowing what the future of um, the conservation and tourism uh, is going to look like. So it's, it's really been a challenge for us. Not only the tourism side of things, uh, we're looking at a whole lot of impact that has happened, you know, or for us, we had to close all the lodges, we had to cut all the budgets, so like everything has just been tied to. Thanks, Barry. I think, yeah, you make uh, yeah, a really valid point in terms of even prior to COVID, conservation areas were struggling for finance. Um, you know, there a lot of research, a lot of papers, a lot of articles on how protected areas in Africa are underfunded. Um, and obviously private ones often doing a lot better than the government ones. So I think this is, you know, the crisis has really, you know, aggravated that and highlighted even more. Um, Barry, in terms of the, the very close relationship that Pinda has with the surrounding communities, what role has that played? Because obviously we're all very much aware how important um, the role of communities is in conservation. Um, so how, what role has that played um, during this crisis? It's, it's been a sad story to say because our communities are our first line of defense when it comes to protecting our wildlife and protecting the reserve. And now suddenly there's pandemic and there's no jobs uh, that we as PINDA have been offering to the communities. And now the question was, okay, what's going to happen now? Are we going to open that gap for like illegal poaching? Because like, everybody is looking for something to, to feed the family. We did a survey um, a couple of months ago with the HR here in PINDA where we looked at one worker that supports anything between six to, to eight additional members in, in, in her or his family. So that a lot has actually also added a lot of uh, stress into uh, the family members in, um, in the communities. Uh, we looked at a lot of things that, as you've asked about the relationship between us and the uh, communities, we, we were being able to create a small job opportunities, um, which we were giving all those opportunities to the surrounding communities that we were closely hand in hand with. But everything happened and then we didn't want to risk a lot in, in minimizing actually the risk of spread of this disease. We had to stop all those projects. You know, we, we were working with uh, teams like alien plant removal and bush encroachment, which is part of our land uh, management schemes. But everything had to dry up and we had to try and minimize the movements and everything. So on its, that on its own has actually had a huge, huge implications and uh, financial loss to the communities, and which is not a nice thing because we have both this strong relationship between us and the community for so many years. And um, So Barry, do you, do you think that because you had this strong relationship, do you think that going forward in terms of, you know, continued support, the community, because they have benefited so much, is their engagement to try and make sure that that relationship continues, plans to sort of develop other ideas? Sorry, I'm putting you a bit on the spot here. But um, from your perspective, in terms of the actual conservation side of it, do you think that relation, that strong relationship has helped during this time? It, it has indeed helped, um, to be honest with you, um, because, like, we were thinking what like with a lot of people losing jobs and there was going to be increase in poaching in this reserve. There was going to be increase in um, uh, illegal activities of bushmeat. But I must be honest, we haven't had so many issues. Uh, we haven't had so many run-ups. So that all boils down to all the years of investment that we've done with the communities. And like going forward as well, 
we as uh, part of the management from the reserve had to ensure that we engage a lot with um, the local headmen, the local chiefs in the communities, just to give them some hopes that, you know what, this shall pass to. We actually initiated some other um, conservation project, like a community conservation course, just to give something back, you know, to the local communities as a way of saying that, you know, we are all together. And we can't say because there's COVID now and that we're leaving you all outside there. We have to re-implement again our uh, bush encroachment control. So now I'm currently working, which I'm excited, I'm currently working with quite a lot of uh, community uh, contracting the property. Just again, you know, like to give them that something in uh, able to, to fit their family. So yeah, we can't drop the ball and we have to keep going. Yeah, I think, Barry, that's yeah, a really good point in terms of these partnerships and collaborations now. They're more important than ever, really, to try and, you know, that we are all in this together. Well, thank you very much, Barry. We'll um, definitely come back to you a little bit later in terms of the, the questions and answers. But right now, we're going to move on to our next panelist, Drew McVeigh, who is from WWF International, and he is the East Africa Wildlife Crime Technical Advisor and has also spent many, many years more than 20 years in conservation in Eastern and Southern Africa. Uh, welcome, Drew. Hi, Sue. How are you today? Good, thanks. Um, so Drew's based in Nairobi, and we're going to um, hear a little bit of a different perspective. So we're moving from Pinda down in South Africa um, up to a more East African perspective. Drew, how are conservation areas, tourism, and communities in East Africa standing up to COVID at the moment uh, and over the past few months? So when we, when we think of protected areas, we need to work in a scale. So I'm going to start out with East Africa and then work my way down. So if you look at COVID, like much of the world, it's had a huge impact in East Africa. The GDP for the region is forecast to decrease by 4.7% in 2020, which is a huge loss. On top of that, protected areas in the region are uh, estimated to contribute something like 48 billion US dollars to in-country expenditure, which is virtually stopped. So that has a really big impact on it. And that's really tested our models of protected areas, as you mentioned earlier and Barry alluded to. You know, our biggest success stories are the success stories where revenue is coming from tourism and those are the protected areas that are the most vulnerable at the moment. The iconic reserves like the Serengeti, the Masai Mara, the Virunga Mountains, and those sort of protected areas which everyone associates, which have been hit hardest. And the knock-on effect is that, is that it's really impacted communities who are directly dependent on reserves for, for, for jobs linked to tourism and other forms, but also the government surrounding that. So this also means that as a direct result, we've, these economic pressures have, have um, impacted the way people view natural resource. So we've seen increased pressures on conservation landscapes as more people want to do farming to try to substitute revenue sources or are driving cattle into reserves, looking for grazing as there's that much pressure and, and more significant. And, you know, what we are starting to see and we're a bit cautious about making too big a statements on, on this because we've still got to be careful about attribution. But there definitely this year, there has been increase in the threats, particularly around bushmeat poaching. You see there's been good anecdotal evidence uh, from across the region about increases. And then also things like human wildlife conflict have also increased across the region. 
Uh, so on that, Drew, do you think uh, there's sort of been mixed feedback? So there was always this drive of rural people moving to urban areas. And now um, with COVID, a lot of the urban people moving back to their rural areas and doing this farming. Um, do you think that's just possibly one of the reasons why there's more human wildlife conflict? I mean, as you said, you don't want to attribute, but could that be playing a role in terms of the wildlife conflict? Definitely. I think what you what you tend to see is that people are that much more reliant on their crops or on their livestock. So if you look in the Maasai Mara where, and in the southern Kenya, where we have the Maasai people, their livestock herd is their bank. So now that the, that that bank, that revenue source becomes so much more important. So if you get predation events going on to that and other things, it has a direct impact on them. They have got very little buffer because there's no other income streams coming in. And just last month, we were in the Mara looking at human elephant conflict. And we visited farms where people literally couldn't send their kids to school because the elephants had been in the night before and eaten all the crops. So it has a huge impact on them. Yeah, and, and in terms of the lockdown, there also been mixed results from different countries, you know, whether the lockdown helped poachers or whether, you know, you mentioned bushmeat trade, which is obviously a lot about subsistence and survival, but actual poaching, you know, ivory, the, the sort of high value poaching, has there any signs of impact increase or decrease? So what we've seen is with the lockdown and the shutdown of, of trade routes, it's certainly things like ivory being transported by people uh, has has declined. We haven't seen the sort of seizures. We're looking at the seizure data for East Africa this year, and you can see a distinct decline. But, you know, we're very, very careful about what sort of statements we're going to make linked to that. I think the one thing that you that you can see is, is that airports aren't open. So, or have only just opened. There's, there's a significant part, part where you can't get into that. And even the, the, uh, the main transport routes were closed down. But what we, what we have picked up in a few cases is as, as people's livelihoods are more affected, we have seen people trying to sell ivory. We don't think that's freshly killed elephants. We think that's ivory, which people were stockpiling, is trying to make some revenue or smaller species like pangolin. So iconic species, rhinos, elephants, it looks like poaching has, has uh, the COVID has, has helped them in terms of lack of disturbance in the protected areas. There's less people there, which is good for them, but also in terms of poaching. But with the smaller game species and even species like giraffe, it looks like there has been an increase in poaching with that. Well, no, thanks, Drew. Uh, yeah, I think it, it's, yeah, as you say, you, do, you don't want to sort of give causation or any kind of thing at the moment because we're still in, you know, this process. And also now with borders opening up, you know, are we going to see a huge increase in, you know, higher value poaching when borders, you know, people who've been waiting sort of. So I think, yeah, the next period is going to be a really interesting time in terms of research and, and figuring out exactly um, the role that COVID has played in terms of conservation. Uh, thank you very much, Drew. Um, we'll come back to you again as well with um, some more comments and questions a little bit later. Right now, we're going to move to our, our next panelist, Fran Reed, who's from African Parks. And Fran is the, the Global Media Manager for African Parks. Um, hi, Fran. Hi, Sue. Thanks for having us here. It's great to be part of it. No, thank you um, very much for taking the time. Just in terms of the general conservation crisis, Fran, how has COVID affected the, the factors contribute to this crisis? Um, have you seen an intensification or um, what have you found in the last few months? Yeah, well, I think 
I think primarily this pandemic has really underscored and, and made it sort of impossible to disregard the, the links between our wholesale destruction of nature and our global economy and, and well-being. And these are behaviors that uh, collectively drive what we call the, the conservation crisis. And they're largely sort of anthropogenic in origin and they're interlinked, but generally acknowledged to be the demand for high value commodities. So that encompasses the illegal wildlife trade, which is um, the multi-billion dollar international trade, um, which is threatening um, countless animal and plant species, everything from sort of rosewood to pangolins and iconic megafauna like rhinos and elephants. Another one of those factors is the, the demand for protein, which is driving the bushmeat trade and overfishing, which is emptying Africa's forests and marine ha habitats and, and rivers. And much like the illegal wildlife trade, that's an unsustainable cycle that in the long term is not only going to be impacting um, human livelihoods, public health and our ecosystems. The demand for energy, which is um, where sort of woodlands are being felled for, to, for the production of charcoal and firewood to meet increasing demands of, of a rapidly burgeoning human population. And the conversion of, of land for human development, and that, uh, that encompasses agriculture, um, opening up habitats for transportation routes, mining, human settlements. Um, all of that is clearing habitat at unprecedented rates and to extents that make it almost impossible to rehabilitate these areas. And then, of course, there's climate change, um, and that sort of ties into all of this, and that's um, putting both biodiversity and people um, at risk of, of extreme climatic events um, and increasingly volatile climatic events. And I think what we've, we've seen with this pandemic, and, and both my colleagues have already sort of discussed this in a, bit, in a bit of detail, but that these various factors contributing to the conservation crisis are not, not entirely uniform um, across Africa in, in terms of how they've been impacted by the pandemic. But we may be seeing um, things like bushmeat trade being aggravated in some parts of the continent, where in other parts of the continent, um, the illegal wildlife trade and bushmeat trade is at least temporarily slowed. I mean, that all depends on the resilience of these landscapes, of these parks, and the people that live within them and around them their reliance on single revenue streams and, uh, and certainly on tourism, which is, I mean, that's exposed them uh, to, to being tremendously vulnerable during this time. And then obviously travel restrictions and the suspension of movement, which Drew alluded to. So there are a whole bunch of, of dynamics there. But I think what's really important to take away from this is that the overarching existential threats of these various factors contributing to what we're calling the conservation crisis they remain largely unchanged in, in their threat to us. And they will be until we start addressing the source of them rather than the symptoms of these global shocks. I mean, even before the pandemic, we were paying too heavy a price. You know, our actions have put one million species at risk of extinction, um, severely de degraded three quarters of, of the, the planet's land surface. Um, and in terms of public health, 70% of emerging infectious diseases are, are zoonotic in origin. It's really essential that we start recognizing the contribution of these ecosystems, biodiversity to our global well-being and economy, and we start adequately investing in nature-based solutions, the restoration and protection of, of these landscapes, because what we do to nature, ultimately, we're doing to ourselves. Exactly. And I think you make this, you know, this point, the, the conservation crisis was there, it's still there, and obviously, a lot of it, but in terms of going forward, are going to be quite focused on development 
health now, especially in Africa, and the need for conservation for organizations like Parks who are playing this role of protection, it's going to be even more important to make sure that we don't sacrifice, you know, the conservation needs and, um, you know, goals of countries in, in the face of development, but that they work together because they can work together. Um, you know, the wildlife economy can support jobs and revenues in so many different aspects. So, um, yeah, I think that's pretty much in terms of what you were saying. I think that need for that continuation and the linkages between, you know, healthy parks and healthy people is so critical. You mentioned the, the tourism revenue and Drew and, and Barry also mentioned it. You know, essentially this tap has been turned off. So you know, I think what governments are really seeing more than anything um, is that how far the flow of the tourism water or the tourism tap went in terms of value chains and multipliers? You know, have you as African parks stopping of revenue? And also in line with that, just funding, you know, what has been the impact in terms of security and revenues for the parks that African parks have been involved in? Yeah, so, so African parks pioneered the public-private partnership model for protected area management. That's a bit of a mouthful. Essentially, that's we partner governments and communities, and we're fully delegated with the management of currently 19 parks within our portfolio. Um, and that means we're fully accountable and responsible for all staff and the execution of management functions within these parks. And tourism and enterprise development is one of the five key pillars of those management functions that we implement. Tourism itself represents about 10% of our annual operating budget. So, of course, that, of course, that was immediately um, and dramatically impacted by, by the pandemic and related travel restrictions. What we had to do was really look at our, our cost base and make sure that we could get back to a place where we were pre the pandemic. But one of our requirements going into any formal management partnership is actually having line of sight of the funding solutions that we can implement. Um, so that's uh, the combination of philanthropic support and park revenue, which uh, tourism is a part of that, but they're not setting up other alternative sustainable enterprises. And we've been extremely fortunate, uh, thanks to committed donor base, that through this pandemic, all parks have remained fully functional and all staff fully, fully employed. Um, and in fact, our rangers didn't miss a single patrol day throughout the pandemic. So we've been able to keep these landscapes safe for people and wildlife. And that's that's our priority. And I think what's also been important has, has been to continue to support communities and uh, help them to maintain enterprises like conservation, conservation agriculture and selling produce. Um, that gives them resilience too, which is essential for the landscape. Yeah, so you mentioned your donors have with you. Uh, have you seen or heard in the industry in general, you know, donor funding? Because there's a lot of talk in the media about donors, you know, taking money from conservation into health um, and development. Have you seen any of that? Not specifically in African parks. It sounds like you have quite, you know, the good donor relationship, so they've stayed. But have you seen any or heard anything about that? I think, look, I think there are multiple things at play here and, and reasons for philanthropic support being pulled or redirected. But I think certainly in in any economic downturn, um, there will be an impact on philanthropy in some way. And conservation, I think, has seen the effects of this in this pandemic. You know, it's it's kind of been anecdotal, but but I, I think that's certainly the case. It's also impacted how we're engaging with with donors um, and with, and with people. I mean, they can't go to these landscapes, so we're using platforms like this. But I think I do think that this pandemic has been a clarifying moment. And what we're seeing is that generally people where, where they can um, are more committed than ever to helping to, to build back more sustainably. 
and we have a responsibility to being part of, of that solution. So I think uh, certainly uh, conservation and the protection of our environment is being identified as one way of, of mitigating these types of global sh shocks, ensuring that they don't happen or they don't recur and um, building some resilience so that we can withstand them when they do recur. Um, so how can we work around the current pandemic to ensure the sustainability of conservation areas? So, you, you know, you've mentioned the donors and the tourism, but obviously right now, um, well, certainly the tourism is not going to be back for probably six months to a year. So how can we, you know, ensure sustainability of the conservation areas as much as possible um, now yeah. and going forward? At African Parks, our goal is to each park, each protected area as uh, socially, environmentally, ecologically and financially sustainable as possible in the long term. And really, our model um, relies on three core ingredients to lay those foundations towards building sustainability and enabling us to scale that footprint. And those three ing ingredients are the, the triple M, the three M's, um, and the first being the, the mandate. Um, and that's a long-term contractual agreement that's typically uh, 20 years or more with government and communities, and which grants us uh, total management and operational responsibility for these, these parks that enables us to counter the threats and, um, and manage revenue. The second M is, is money, is implementing funding solutions based on, on complexity and scale, and that's alongside park revenue which is looking at and identifying um, opportunities to establish viable enterprises and that coupled with, with tourism development where that's possible. And all park revenue then being um, optimized and reinvested back into the parks to re reduce donor dependency over time. And then, then of course, management, that's the third M um, because good governance is absolutely critical. So every park in our portfolio is established as a separate legal entity within the host country where it's got its own board of, of directors, which represent the, the various partners involved. So that's government, communities, and, and African parks. And we're responsible for implementing management functions. And those are all based on, on those five key pillars, which are law enforcement, community development, enterprise, tourism and enterprise development, biodiversity conservation and management and infrastructure development. So, you know, while this pandemic has unquestionably knocked the sector and multiple sectors, but particularly in places that are more reliant on single revenue streams and, and particularly on tourism in this case, we find that having these three ingredients within our model are really essential in building towards that sustainability and our ability to scale. And it is a model that has shown itself to be resilient to emergent threats. Yeah, I think diversification and resilience been talked about a lot, but we've really, you know, it's this this crisis has sort of put the spotlight on it, and yeah, models like African parks definitely something that needs to be replicated. And you know, this diversification. I mean, if we, any of us have investments in a bank, you would never put all your money into one pot or you know get in revenue from that. So why should we rely so heavily on tourism? Not that you know, there's a lot of talk as well about tourism. You know, we mustn't rely on it all, but there is a role for tourism as one of the suite of options of of the financing. So thank you so much, Fran. That was uh, really interesting. And yeah, I look forward to the question of the with you again. Um, <laughs> Thank you. We'll move on to our next panelist, Chris Galliers, who's from the Game Rangers Association of Africa. Welcome, Chris. Chris is the exec an executive committee member of the Game Rangers Association of Africa and also has many, many, more than 15 years of experience in conservation. Welcome, Chris. Thanks very much, Sue. Nice to be here. 
Um, so Chris, in terms of the Game Rangers Association, what is the, just to explain to everyone, what is the role of a Game Ranger in wildlife management uh, generally? And then we'll come to the current COVID challenges. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a very interesting one. And actually one that we, we're dealing with at the moment where we're trying to, uh, trying to define what a ranger is, what is the role of a ranger. So at the moment, what we, we've got uh, a definition um, which looks at a ranger who is mandated as a professional guardian of species, habitats and ecosystems. And also importantly, which people often don't uh, normally consider, is that they're also involved in the sort of cultural and historical heritage uh, conservation as well. And they also play a very important role in terms of protectors of the rights of, of people uh, entitled to the use and en enjoyment of uh, resources as well. Uh, they represent authorities, they can represent organizations, or they can be uh, members of a community and represent the, the community themselves. They can work in protected areas uh, and conserved or conserved areas and a wider landscape or seedscape. Uh, we mustn't forget the ocean component as well. The rangers play a very important role there um, in protecting that. So all around, very important role in, in conservation, but also form the bridge between uh, the, the human and uh, sort of biodiversity component managing that interface. So, yeah, the role of a ranger is very diverse. I mean, you mentioned all the different the cultural, historical um, conservation aspects. How, how has COVID impacted on that role? You know, what are the additional challenges that COVID has brought to this role of, of game rangers in conservation areas? Yeah, so I think the, the first thing was that rangers probably across the world, not just unique to Africa, um, was security of their positions. You know, we've, we've heard from the other speakers around the, the concerns of tourism and the money that that brings. Also, you know, channels of funding drying up or not being able to get to, to the places where they needed. Uh, so, so that probably was the insecurity of the positions of rangers was a big concern, particularly those, in, um, you know, in government's employment, uh, government obviously relied heavily on, on donor funding in some cases, particularly in parts of Africa, or they they also had very small budgets. Uh, and then COVID came along and a lot of the funding has been uh, directed elsewhere to healthcare, et cetera, and not necessarily back towards uh, conservation. So that was a big concern um, and is still playing out as we speak. The other one that people haven't really realized is the actual professional development. Uh, we sort of put on ice the ability to train people, not only just to develop more ranges uh, and new ranges, but also in terms of retraining. It's a very important part of a ranger's role is the retraining components. So, so you know, they, to develop those specialist skills that are required in, in the job. And I think that because of COVID it's, and the, the, the ability of trainers uh, in some instances, to travel, to carry out the training. The funding for that training has also been a challenge. Um, and we've heard um, about the, the, the increase in, in poaching, uh, particularly around bushmeat and um, also within our, our marine areas as well, our freshwater systems uh, in terms of um, overfishing, et cetera. Those are a big uh, concern and also increased human-wildlife conflict and possibly not so much the increase in the conflict, but the ability for rangers to actually deal with it. A lot of the challenges has been around having the funds to carry out operations. So the operational day-to-day -day ability to put fuel in the tank, for example, has been constrained in a lot of places. So it's prevented the ability of rangers to actually do their job. So that's, that has been a, a huge challenge from a, a professional perspective. 
But there's also the personal element that we mustn't forget about. You know, rangers have families and families are, are threatened by COVID and rangers are often away from their families. And that, that puts pressure on them, the inability to be there for their family during COVID, the threat that they, um, their families face. And uh, then they're not there to assist. As you know, many families have been challenged by kids staying at home and without the, the pa- pa- one parent being there to be hands-on, it's also put strains on, on those people. So, yeah, I think there's, a, there's a, ho- a whole list of challenges personally which have played out that often don't get, uh, get seen. And, and I think we've got to understand those, the psychological impact, just for example, of not being necessarily able to do their job. A lot of the rangers get into the profession because they're passionate about conservation and not being able to actually undertake their job because they are constrained by finances um, really is, is not, not good for their morale. Yeah, we come back to this funding question again. I mean, I think, as I mentioned earlier, we, you know, there was a funding issue before and now it's become more exacerbated. And I really liked your... Um, in, you know your take on the psychological impacts because I think we we you know everyone is talking about this funding and this financing thing but the psychological or social impacts of you know rangers not being at home and family members possibly getting ill is really something that we we need to look at and address. Uh, you mentioned training as well. Uh, there'll obviously be a need now in terms of training um, rangers with COVID you know restrict you know COVID protocols and things like that. Is that something that's happening at the moment? Or that, are you aware of it at all? Um, or is it mostly just the people on the tourism side of things, not specifically the ranger side of things? Yeah, so, so thankfully there have been a lot of organisations that have jumped in and and contributed to you know, the, the basics where some um, protected areas haven't been able to provide the necessary uh, PPE for the rangers to be able to interact with, with people. Particularly, you know, they've been carrying out, in some cases, humanitarian functions, handing out food to communities, you know, working with communities in health aspects. So they've been asked to do some some interesting tasks in some places. Uh, so, yeah, I think there's been a great, uh, uh, quite a good response. Uh, there's been quite a lot done remotely in developing uh, as quickly as possible guidelines, very sort of graphic guidelines to be able to assist rangers who might be in remote places to be able to understand what precautions to, to take uh, um, and how to, to create um, you know, PPE or, or whatever they need um, if they're in remote places. So there's, there has been quite a, a strong effort to assist rangers as much as possible in, you know, in understanding COVID and also for them to, to be able to educate others as well. Thanks, Kristen. Do you think that the, it's still true that conservation can bring better economic returns than many other land uses, for, specifically for local communities? Is, does that still hold true now that we don't have the tourism funding coming in? Yeah, I, th- I think it's a very important question. To be honest, I don't know if it's been fully fully addressed. Uh, what it has exposed, as everyone is saying, that we do need to, you know, as you as you were earlier saying with, with Fran, we can't put our eggs all in one basket. We need to diversify. And what is that diversity? What does it look like? And I think that's where, you know, we've been involved in prior to COVID, looking at developing these these real alternatives, not to just have have tourism as as the sole provider. So yeah, we got to we got to be creative. I think there's still a, a lot of room for developing those those opportunities. Um, we're looking at things such as alternatives, such as uh, venison project, developing a protein source from these uh, areas that can support the people on the outside to try and uh, get you know real benefits from the the land that they own.
own as a competitive as economic competitors to whatever land use could be there, whether it's grazing, crop production or whatever. We really need to find that economic opportunity. And I think that diversity is key. So, yeah, tourism has, has been dented. It shows that it is is not necessarily the, the sort of panacea for all protected areas. Um, and we do need to start looking at real alternatives that are complementary to conservation. And there are uh, certainly a number of initiatives at the moment, you know, beyond tourism um, initiatives that are, are trying to look at this because, as you say, there are alternatives. And um, as long as they are contributing both to conservation and development, and that's where we're going to have to find, you know, the monitoring and evaluation of these, um, that we don't, again, sacrifice the conservation for development because they are compatible. Uh, thanks so much. Um, we'll also come back later with some questions, and we're going to move on to our final panelist today. Um, and moving from the land to the oceans, you mentioned the oceans, Chris, and I think something that we often so often forget about in terms of you know conservation. Everyone thinks of the big um, hairy animals on the on the land. So welcome, Dr. Tessa Hemson, who's from Oceans Without Borders. Um, she's the program manager and principal scientist for Oceans Without Borders. She got her PhD from James Cook University. It's really great to have you with us, Tessa. Great, thank you so much, Sue, and thank you for hosting this really important conversation. Yeah, so, so as I said, moving to the oceans, I think, yeah, something that's often so often neglected, but have you seen an increase in overfishing um, as people are turning, we mentioned that people are turning to bushmeat a lot for subsistence and, and for food. Have you have you seen a cases of overfishing to supplement income and um, to, you know, for livelihoods and food? Yeah, so it's, um, it's, it's actually interesting how the conversation so far has gone in terms of, you know, how it's the the drivers of what we're seeing now are not all local you know it's very much at a global scale and the the oceans are sort of the epitome of that they really are the the ultimate global commons um so in terrestrial spaces you know you can put up fences and sort of demarcate areas to some extent to to minimize impacts um whereas with oceans to a large extent you know it's all completely interconnected so when you look at you know what what the dynamics are around covid and and increases or decreases in fishing pressure um, you really need to look at it at multiple scales, like like Drew was highlighting earlier. So at a local scale, absolutely, you know, with with the decline in tourism, you know, many, many local coastal communities, particularly in the East African region where we work, they're very reliant on tourism. And um, a lot of that sector has now collapsed and there, there are many people without their, their normal revenue and livelihoods. So many, many of those people are having to turn to to the local reefs and marine resources to support themselves and their families. At a local scale, yes, there, there is an increase in, in um, local fishing and a, an increase in the pressure on local reef systems. But then at a global scale, it's actually a really interesting dynamic because in many cases, we're actually seeing a decrease in the demand for, for seafood because a lot of the seafood market internationally is actually driven by the hospitality and tourism sectors. For example, in the United States, about two-thirds of their, their demand for fish, their fish um, market, is driven by the, the restaurant industry. And because of COVID, we've been, you know, none of us have been going to restaurants for months. So that demand has decreased significantly. There's also been a very strong decline in, in shipping um, and the export markets. You know, a lot of ships have been locked down offshore, but uh, crews on ships haven't been able to exchange. Uh, the demand hasn't existed. So there's been a, a big increase in, in the demand for, for fish internationally. These dynamics, you know, they 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 play out at, at, at various different scales. So uh, while it might sound like a good news in terms of overfishing globally, 
there are estimates that it might take, you know, 10 to 15 years or more of really strong management of our ocean's fisheries to actually have an impact and to start getting towards some sort of sustainable model for fishing. At a local scale as well, you know, the, the loss of income and revenue from the global economy is it's impacting very heavily on the millions of people that rely on marine resources for their livelihoods. The knock-on effects of that, I think, you know, is going to take a while before we really see the full implications of that. And quite possibly one of those is going to be driving increased overfishing. You mentioned this global scale. So the um, illegal, unregulated and unreported fishing. Any thoughts on that? You know, has this the lockdown helped to sort of manage that at a, at a global scale? I mean, I'm just thinking of the example of Gabon, where, you know, like 85% of the fish that are fished in Gabon are, are, are foreigners and a lot of it is illegal and unreported and unregulated. Any thoughts on that? It's a complex one, and I think it's going to take a while for us to fully untangle it and, and really understand what's happening. But at a local scale, the lack of uh, vigilance on, on, on you know, reef sites or fishing grounds because of, you know, decline in tourism boats actually being on those sites, you know, we're not seeing when there are people coming in and poaching and fishing illegally. So at that scale, um, and also, you know, the, the local increase in, in need for those marine resources, absolutely, it, there's an increase in, in illegal fishing. At a global scale, the drivers play a huge part. So if there's no market for, for fish, then that's an, a decreased incentive for, for um, illegal fishing. But at the same time, you know, as same as at the local scale, is if there aren't tourism boats or if there aren't commercial ships out there, uh, it makes it easier to make poaching happen. So maybe you can jump in and grab the market. It's, it's complex and it's, it's changing rapidly, you know, as countries... Um, change their lockdown restrictions, tourism opens up, closes down, restaurants and, you know, public gatherings and those sorts of spaces open up or close. The, the drivers change quite a lot. So I think it's, there's, there's pushes and pulls in both directions and the sort of the, the overall outcome is going to be, you know, really interesting to see how it plays out. And I think one thing to highlight is that in this time, while, while there are all these really unique dynamics going on, it's a, it's a really interesting time to, to really pay attention and collect the data, notice what the trends are so that we can see how things are influenced and then to take that learning into a post-COVID world. So now while we don't have you know, high levels of boat pressure from unregulated tourism on a reef, we can see how does a reef respond? You know, how much pressure do you have to take off to make it operate um, in a healthier way? You know? so, and the same in terms of global fishing markets and restaurant demands and all those economic drivers. It's a massive global experiment at the moment. And if we take the learnings from this period, I think we could really change the way we do business on the planet in the future, which is ultimately massively integrated in ocean, ocean health. Definitely speaking my language with data, um, being a researcher myself, um, and having just done some research on the wildlife economy in Africa and the lack of data, I think this is a critical time, as you say, to really, you know, even the, the lack of tourism vehicles in protected areas on land as well, you know, what is that impact being? And as you say, we try and form these marine protected areas to see the impacts on reefs and fish and that, but we've sort of had this forced in other areas. So, yeah, I think an excellent time to really, so any students um, listening to us, uh, please contact all of us. We've got plenty of ideas for data that needs to be collected. Um, just quickly, Professor. In terms of the global lockdown, has there been a positive effect on marine wildlife itself, or do you think there's an increased risk because of all the discarded protective wear? We've seen all these photos of marine birds with masks tied to them. You know, what? Um, any comments on that? Yeah, sure. I, again, it's not a straightforward answer. It's it's quite interesting. So, 
obviously for the oceans, there have been huge positive impacts from, from lockdown. Um, and obviously it's, it's unprecedented, you know, all flights grounded globally almost, you know, so all the, the carbon emissions from that, just the flights being grounded is, is immense. There's estimates of, of global um, greenhouse gas emissions being reduced by 5%, which is, you know, something that we, we were dreaming of a few months ago. And it's happening and it's happened overnight. And, and carbon dioxide is driving a lot of the big issues in the oceans. Ocean warming, um, in my environment, I'm working primarily on, on coral reefs and we're losing huge tracts of coral reefs around the planet because of increasing carbon dioxide, driving warming in our oceans and then wiping out huge tracts of reef from, from coral bleaching. In that respect, I mean, absolutely, the, the reduction in, in carbon emissions is a huge bonus. Obviously, there's also with decreased uh, shipping, decreased boat traffic, there's less pollution, there's less underwater noise. So there are a number of silver linings. But again, you know, this is a, a short term breather. It's by no means, you know, going to totally put our oceans on, on track again. But it's a good time for learning. But then in terms of, you know, the, the you saying about seabirds seeing with the, the masks on their faces and things. So, yes, definitely. Obviously, as a planet, we're all becoming far more focused on having these protective barriers just to prevent the spread of the disease. And that waste is, is going into our oceans to a large extent. You know, it goes into our waste systems, washed down our rivers and into the oceans. While that is absolutely a, a very serious threat, it's only a small component of a, a much bigger issue. And that's, it's a really interesting dynamic where, you know, we're seeing a huge increase in the amount of plastic that we're using. And the exacerbating force on that is that, you know, global, the global um, oil prices were, they were declining even pre-COVID. And then when COVID hit, we all stopped traveling. There was even less demand for, for fossil fuels, which meant that oil got a whole bunch cheaper. And when oil got cheaper, it made it a lot easier and cheaper to produce single-use plastics. At the same time, the global economy crashing, you know, most of us are experience economic stress you don't have all the extra cash we used to have so a lot of people are buying cheaper options and very op often those options are wrapped in plastic and also the alternatives to plastic wrapping is um they're often more expensive because it's not mainstream yet so biodegradable alternatives and packaging there's this huge increase in, in demand for single-use plastics um, we're all ordering takeout because we don't go to restaurants so we're getting food delivered to our home that's packaged too so there's this huge increase in the amount of pollution that we're putting into the system. And then the, the real kicker is now that we've got all this extra production, very often, when well, a lot of countries around the world, and particularly the developing world, recycling programs are failing now. Because very often um, those are financed by government or municipalities, and those bodies are now experiencing severe economic stress. And they're rather putting their funds into things like health or security, you know, these basic human needs and things like recycling is seen as a luxury and an extra. So very often those programs have been cut. So a lot of the waste that we would have been recycling no longer been dealt with and make its way into the oceans. And uh, in the developing world, there's a, an extra little dynamic there where the a lot of the recycling sector is actually in the informal sector. Anyone that's been to Joburg has seen the guys, you know, wheeling their, their trolleys around and they're entrepreneurs that are collecting plastic from our sidewalks, our streets, our cities, consolidating those, taking them to, to recycling centers where they're getting paid for, for what they collect. And that's no longer lucrative because there isn't money to, to pay these guys. Uh, so they're not, not only losing their livelihood, but all of that plastic collection and uh, concentration for recycling is no longer happening. 
there are a whole bunch of knock-on effects that are, are really interesting way beyond our masks and our gloves as much as those are polluting our oceans too. Sure. So I think the message here is stay at home and cook for yourself and, and try not to go out. So you don't need the masks. Um, and certainly cut off the, the straps of your masks if you are using um, the masks that have the, the straps. Thank you, Tessa. That, that was really, really informative. And I think, yeah, food for thought, because I think, as you say, we were all on this sort of trend of recycling and, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle. And now, um, yeah, you just see people using plastic right, left and center for, you know, protective wear. So, yeah, something we really need to give thought to. Uh, thanks, Tessa. Thank you, everyone. I think really um, insightful comments and input from everyone. And thank you very much for the excellent questions that are coming in. Um, we're going to try and run through as many of those as possible. And the first one is from Sandy Armstrong, um, who's in the US. Thanks, Sandy, for your question. With the loss of revenue due to COVID, how is the community doing? And have the animals been safe from poachers? I'm going to ask Barry, um, just given that uh, Pinder's, you know, so involved with the communities there. Barry, um, you did touch on this a little bit in the beginning. How are your communities doing overall? Thanks for uh, the question, Sandy. Yeah, the community has been doing so well um, due to, again, I'll go again uh, in saying that due to the relationship that we've had with them, because they are buying into the idea, they, they all understand what we are at the moment and what uh, this pandemic has brought into us. You know, like, as I've said earlier, that we had to engage quite a lot with the local leaders and say, listen, there will be a green light at the end of the tunnel. So let's all keep doing what we've been doing for the last couple of years. So, you know, like they've been very, very positive um, about that one day, you know, that this, this will pass as well. And then life will be back into normal. And then in terms of um, the animals, again, I've mentioned earlier that uh, our communities are our first line of defense, you know, um, they've been playing a huge role. Um, Chris, my colleague mentioned earlier that sometimes Game rangers can be defined as some people that works in the communities, which we are as people that work inside the reserve may not know about them. But luckily we have people like those in our surrounding communities that keep tabs with us and ensure that, you know, like if they see any illegal suspicious activities, they do alert us because they're from the neighboring communities. They, they live right next to our reserves and they know that if they also perpetrate that you know, people come and poach and kill these animals that we have. Uh, that's going to be having a huge impact on them uh, in the next uh, in the future. So animals have been safe. And as I've said again, um, we haven't had a lot of uh, uh, incident and incursion in our property. Thanks, Barry. The next question is from Jared Chan. And I think, Fran, I'm going to direct this to you just because African Parks does um, engage in a lot of tourism. Um, Jared is asking, how can travel industry stakeholders, agents, tourism bureaus play a role in conservation once restrictions ease? And are there new marketing directions they can take? Just being mindful of, of where you're traveling to, where you're directing people to travel to. You know, really, you're wanting to optimize the support that's going to, to conservation areas. And, and looking at, at the work that's being done in some of these places, places that are being uh, restored and transformed. And, and yeah, and I, I do think, it, I mean, just optimizing the, the revenue that ends up being reinvested in the park, that ends up on the ground, that contribution is really important. And I think that, that, that can be optimized. I think another 
crucial thing, uh, and I, I don't think it's come up uh, yet today, but is also the domestic travel sector in these countries. Um, and that's certainly been an important one for us. Actually, um, our, our tourism to our parks is, is last year it was over 60% domestic market, which is really essential. So bringing along that sector, bringing along people from, um, from you know, nationals in these countries, because they are the ultimate stakeholders and they are the future voters. Um, and the, the future of conservation in these places lies in their hands. So it's not just the immediate revenue, but it's, it's more of that kind of long-term um, sustain, sustainability factor to it. Yeah, so I think that's, that's essential. Thanks, Ryan. Drew, on that, I know that there's been a big marketing campaign in Kenya for domestic tourism, and certainly in Rwanda with the reduction of gorilla permits. Um, in terms of marketing, any idea, any thoughts and you know, inputs from you from the East African perspective? Yeah, just to build on Fran's point, which I think was really important, we need to make sure that we're investing in tourism enterprises where we know the funds are going back to the communities and going back to the protected areas. There are good examples. We encourage people, uh, Jared and others, to make sure they're looking for, for responsible tourism operators to, to engage with, really make sure that these benefits do trans, transfer across to the local groups and building on the sustainable tourism agreements in enterprises which have adopted that is so crucial at the moment because we have to get as much of the money coming in back into local communities, back into protected areas as possible. Previously in the region, we've all encountered dips in tourism, but generally they've been V formations. And so we've been able to rebound very quickly. What we know is that the projections are that it's going to take two to three years to be able to build back tourism sector to what it is currently now. And that's why it's really important that when people do think on their holidays and we're dying to get more people here as possible, but they are in making sure that their, their, their dollar is making maximum conservation value. Thanks, Drew. And I think there's also a lot of talk in the tourism space about people instead of traveling you know to many different countries you know countries trying to attract people to stay longer in one country and also reducing travel and spending more locally so i think yeah you both touched on that um there's a the next question is from giselle cruzden um and i think fran again because you you did touch on this in terms of the conservation crisis but would and anyone else please step in as well but would you agree that COVID has played a role in accelerating the pre-existing conservation vulnerabilities I think what the pandemic has done is it's exposed the conservation vulnerabilities rather than accelerated. These were pre-existing vulnerabilities. As I said, I mean, some of, in some cases, the factors driving the crisis have been aggravated. But I do think that what's happening here is in the, the grand scheme of things uh, is sort of more, more temporary. Um, and what we're needing to look at is, is what's happening more long term in terms of our impact on the environment and, and the consequences of our, of our destruction of, of nature. I think this is a moment where it's now essential that we're, that we're looking at addressing the cause, um, the source rather than the symptoms of these problems, and that biodiversity really, along with, with climate change, gets integrated into development agendas you know, it's a time when the finance community and governments across the world can really look at, at things like nature-based solutions, uh, at mechanisms of restoring and protecting these places that ultimately are, are the natural factories of everything that we depend on. 
and certainly uh, what it, what's been exposed in, in this instance is, you know, that these areas are critically underfunded. How is it possible that, um, that everything that our, our global economy, our civilization relies upon is, um, is being held up just by tourism in some places? So we really need to look at, um, at uh, ways of investing better and at scale in priority areas. Yeah, excellent point you know, about the exposure. I think you know the weaknesses in our funding models in the way we run conservation has really been exposed. And the incorporation of an international accounts, ensuring that conservation is integrated, uh, really critical. And um, the next question is from Val Mouton. And it's, um, do you think COVID will drive organizations to work closer together for common goals? Um, I'd like Chris to have the first go at that. And then Tessa, if you'd like to bring in from the ocean perspective, as you said, you know, the oceans are this massive commons. So how can we work together, Chris? Yeah, thanks. Um, I actually think we've already, we're already seeing it. So it's already taking place, you know, thanks to the online uh, ability as well. Um, certainly from a ranger perspective, uh, globally, we've created a, a new uh, universal ranger uh, support alliance called URSA. Um, that's been developed over this period, and an action plan is about to be launched around that. So, so I think these partnerships are, are really uh, important, and I also think just because of we have the ability to influence the narrative uh, and strengthen people's understanding of the tangible link between our health and that of the natural environment, what it's done is also put the word of conservation and um, ecological health uh, Etc. into the ears of people who probably wouldn't have listened. Uh, so we've been able to increase the, the partnerships, but also increase them cross-sectorally, which is hugely valuable. And I think bringing those additional people, additional sectors into the conversation is a great start. So I think it's, it has been very positive. Thanks. Chris. Tessa, would you like to add on from the ocean perspective? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think, yes, absolutely. I think COVID is something that, you know, it's, it's been a, an incredible shock to us all, but it's also made us all realize that we're, we're all literally in the same boat, <laughs> in the words of Jacques Cousteau, you know, the oceans is the ultimate unifier. And it's, it's forcing, you know, like the, the things that Chris was highlighting that, um, you know, multiple sectors have to really uh, work together. And this is something that, you know, the Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs, has has highlighted a huge need for and provided this, this really strong framework for us to work towards a more sustainable mode of business and operating on the planet. Um, and one of the key things in that is obviously a, a sustainable ocean sector. And that relates to, you know, the, the economic side of it, so shipping, fisheries, uh, conservation. And because it's all so strongly integrated, there, there's no other way to to do it better to work together because if you don't have a healthy ocean you don't have healthy fisheries you don't have uh, anything to attract tourism um, you have you know communities that are under resourced and therefore you know falling into severe conflict which has major impacts on the way countries and econo economies can grow and function so i think absolutely covid is is really making us realize that we we have to work together and the ocean is one of the spaces where I think there's the most potential and, and realization for the way we need to go about that and the way that we need to really integrate, work together through SDGs um, and find innovative ways to bridge the gaps between us to work for a common goal. 
Thanks, Tess. I'm going to stay with you. There's a question from Blue Nose 352. Um, does the lack of whale watching or no whale watching tours help whales and orcas um, feed better? And then, uh, Drew, if you want to add on to that, any perspective from the East African coast side as well? But Tessa, your your thoughts on that? It's it's um it, I'm so first of all just a disclaimer I'm not a whale expert, but I, I get to hang out and have conversations with some wonderful whale experts. So I'll I'll channel them. What um, you were going to say? Conversations with whales. Sorry. Hydrophones up the water, so we're starting to figure that out, and they, they do some pretty cool stuff. They have their own dialects and slang. Yeah, it's interesting because last year when we had a, a booming tourism season, for some reason, so we have these really great networks of, of whale watchers and researchers up and down the east coast of Africa. Those extend globally, those are just the ones I'm connected to. And last year there was a lot of concern because there, there weren't the annual whale migration of humpback whales that come up the east coast. They just didn't arrive to a large extent. There were very, very few whales that came up the coast. And... Um, as far as I'm aware, there's not too much understanding yet of, of why that was a factor. But this year, when there's no one out there out to see them, um, there've been fantastic numbers of whales around. So it's only the few lucky people that have been out in the water that have seen them. So I don't think it's a categorical answer. I think where, where whale watching and whale tourism is conducted uh, well, it can be very, very effective in building awareness, teaching people about the environment, um, engaging guests with with these wild places, um, inspiring uh, donations, change behavior globally and the way we do things to support conservation. Done badly, obviously, mass tourism or unregulated tourism, um, you know, where whales are getting hustled, where they're exposed to high levels of boat noise, absolutely that will impact whales. And I, I have a colleague who works in Seattle, which is a huge harbor, and that's very much the focus of his work, is how do we, how do we make sure um, our boat traffic for, for whale tourism is done in a way where it minimizes the, the noise underwater and in important whale feeding grounds or at particular times of year. So when things are done well, I think um, it's not, it can be a very minimal impact with a very positive outcome, but it's about doing it the right way. Thanks, Drew? Yeah, I've got a lot to add to that. Tess has captured it brilliantly. I think the other thing that we've slightly got a problem in at the moment is that because there are so few people going out to normal, there's extra pressure on those people um, who are taking people out to maximize the tourism experience. And there's also a lot less policing going on. So there is a slight risk, and this goes for terrestrial tourism and marine, for those guides to push that little bit harder to get that close, that extra special encounter for some for, for people with wildlife, be it uh, whales and dolphins or mountain gorillas and that's certainly something that we that we have to watch watch over this process is making sure that we're still able to police these things and work with everyone as possible to maximize that yeah thanks drew i think the UNWTO is also developing guidelines now of tourism during covid so um yeah worth looking out for those um barry i'm going to address the, the last question which is from graham vercale to you he's asking is there a standout permanent change was good coming out of this pandemic. So, um, you know, what can we take positively out of this pandemic um, from your perspective? Yeah, there's definitely a, a really positive impact. You know, um, this pandemic, one or, or the other side of the coin, it has uh, knocked us down, but on the other side of the coin, it has made us uh, stronger um, with our neighbors or neighboring communities. So, 
yeah, hopefully, and um, we hope that there is definitely going to be some change uh, going forward and that we can see more in terms of our strength and the bond and the relationship between us and the communities. And uh, we also have to say thanks to Africa Foundation uh, that also had uh, been running up and down, playing a huge role in ensuring that that whole food chain, that whole um, working together with the communities doesn't break up. So yeah, there's definitely some change coming up, Graham, uh, if that answers your question. Drew, would you like to add to that before you put your hand up there? Yeah, thanks very much. I think it's really, really, if, so for me, there's two things that's come out of it. The first thing is we're all not traveling as much. And for people like Chris and I, who used to spend, and, and Fran and all of us on this call, used to spend huge amounts of time traveling. We're a lot more efficient in a lot of the ways in that we operate, and all of our own carbon budgets have, have decreased. But I think probably that major factor is, and it's something I, I think it was, um, I think it was the, the first question or well, one of the questions earlier that came up was, you know, a lot of these issues, they're not new issues. We've been sitting on them and grappling them. Sue, you, you and I have been working on Beyond Tourism. Other people have been looking on these things, but there's been nothing to sort of, it's sort of like you don't, you, you don't damage the golden goose, do you? I can't think of what the saying is at the moment. But tourism was good, so it was fine. We didn't really need to think about how we diversify massively. There weren't the huge sort of drives for change. And one thing that COVID's done is it's given us a checkpoint to say, stop, we need to have a look at this. We really need to address some of these factors which have been sitting underlying there for, for such a long time. And I think it's it is exciting that institutions are working more of these, working more on these elements. And we really, you know, people have had, it's been for one of a better word, adapt or die at the moment. You've had to think of different ways to operate, different ways to do things. And it has, and out of these crises do come some of the biggest points of innovation. Yeah. So would you like to add as well? Sure. Yeah. Just to follow on directly from Drew, I agree entirely. And I think, you know, there was a question earlier from Jared where he was saying, you know, are there, are there ways that the tourist, tourism sector can do things differently? And I think today's call is a brilliant example of that. You know, the fact that we're having this conversation and that, can, that it can be accessed by millions of people around the world potentially is, is due to COVID. Um, and, you know, operating in this virtual space, so things like, um, you know, virtual, virtual tourism, where we were on safari from our living rooms, and we're getting all the kind of, you know, stimulation and information and engagement with guides and multiple places without the carbon footprint, there's this huge benefit in that. And I mean, that's not the entire solution, but it's part of a potentially far more sustainable future where we get the benefits of, of shared information inspiration, education, uh, but without some of the negative impacts as, as part of the way we go about things. Maybe we can use all the money that we used for travel and international conferences and put it all into protected area and conservation area funding. <laughs> um, thank you all so much. I think really um, excellent um, insights and information and your expertise. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy days. I, and I'm sure it's the same for you. I feel even though I'm traveling less, I seem to be busier every day. I'm not sure what happened the time that I used to travel. So thank you. And thank you for the excellent questions that have been coming in and for everyone participating. I'd like to just end off on a, on a, a positive note. You know, we have all these, this conservation crisis and all these, you know, issues that we're grappling with. But 
there is a, a positive chance here for us if we you know if we innovate and we you know reset and recreate things and look at things differently um, there is an opportunity to really make a positive difference so i'm going to just go around for each of the panelists um, and get a either a quote or a word that inspires them um, in terms of conservation in africa so i'll just go um, along with the panel so barry any last word or quote that you'd like to leave us with to inspire us for the future um, thank you, Sue. Um, yeah, I'll end up uh, by saying, you know, we, yes, definitely this pandemic threw us off. Um, yes, we did fell off as conservation's tourism business areas, but I believe in, in that no matter how hard we fell, uh, what defines us is how well we are going to rise. I would like to end again by saying, if we work together with our communities through these conservation areas, and um, we are like an ocean, something that is so strong that can be uh, broken down. But if we take uh, the road of working as individual, we are like a single drop. So I would like to emphasize on working together uh, through conservation, through tourism and the communities. Uh, thanks, you. Thanks, um, Drew? Uh, yeah, for me, the, it's a it's quite a famous saying, but I didn't know where it came from. But I did find out as we're thinking about this. It's called "Many Many Hands Make Light Work," and that comes from the higher people in Northwest Tanzania. And I think we've all got to work together to solve this crisis. If one institution could have done it, it would be done by now. It's all about partnerships. Thanks, Drew. Fran. Yeah, it's remarkable actually how similar um, mine is to, to Drew's and Barry's, um, but I guess we're all sort of on collectively the same page, but resilience is the word. I think, you know, people are remarkably resilient. We've had our backs up against the wall um, numerous times in history. Species are resilient and ecosystems are resilient, and we're eroding that at the moment. If we can just change the way we do things a little bit, if we can give these, these systems a chance they can recover and, uh, and wildlife can recover and return. And we've seen that in the parks that, 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 uh, that we're managing and, uh, and we can recover. And I think there's a lot of hope in the knowledge that ultimately these are human challenges, but, but because they are, we're also incredibly capable of engineering solutions to them. And, um, and we're seeing that in every sector almost of society. I mean, you look at African governments that are standing up and, and putting nature and conservation and conservation tourism at the, at the center of their economic and development initiatives and, um, and people rallying to the cause and joining sessions like this. And, and there's, there's a lot of hope out there. So, um, so it's important to remember that, uh, that we are a resilient world. Thank you, Fran. Chris? Yeah, I think, I think it's uh, a point that I raised earlier is that, um, you know, the, the, the COVID-19 situation it's, and its origin has uh, put the sort of conservation community uh, into a bit of control of the narrative um, and getting that narrative out there to a broader audience to understand um, the relationship between humans and the natural system. So um, I have two quotes that I'd like to end off with. And one is um, from a, a paper that um, I was involved in developing around COVID and the impact in uh, on protected areas. Uh, and it says that it is a critical time we assert that effectively and equitably managed networks of well-connected, protected and conserved areas provide one of the most important ways in which to strengthen and repair 
the relationship between people and the natural systems on which they depend. So I think that's that's very pertinent um, going forward, particularly in the next decade, um, as we look to increase our, our protected areas, discussions around the 30% uh, increase, which is which is really important. And then just a final quote, um, which was in a, a, a roundtable discussion um, that we had as uh, online, which was the benefits of the sort of Zoom communities and everything that have been able to be established out of COVID as well. Um, the, that's a positive side, is uh, rangers need us and we need rangers. Uh, and that was from Jane Goodall um, in, a, in a roundtable discussion we had with her. And, it, in, and the problem that, that we faced with is, large, is pretty much uh, human-induced and it's going to take human-induced solutions um, to, to solve it. So um, we, we need to find these. And as Drew and uh, Fran said, it's going to take a collective effort. Thank you, Chris. And uh, Tessa? Yeah, I second all of those sentiments from, from my colleagues on the panel. I think just from my perspective on the ocean side, I, I'd like to go with a quote from um, a woman who I admire immensely, Sylvia Earle, who's done a huge amount for, for marine conservation. And her quote is, and she's got many, so I encourage you to, to follow her work, but she said, with every drop of water you drink, every breath you take, you're connected to the sea. No matter where you live on earth, you're connected. So the, there's a, that's a lot of what's driven the crisis in our oceans, and, um, but it's also the opportunities. So the really exciting thing about ocean conservation for me during and beyond COVID is that no matter where you are on the planet, you can have a really profound and real daily impact on marine conservation uh, just by changing the way you go about business because everything we do directly impacts the ocean. If we travel, most of that carbon dioxide is absorbed by the oceans. When we make consumer choices, when we buy uh, goods with packaging or choose to buy less packaged goods, a lot of that is ending up in our oceans and impacting our marine life. Um, so there, there are a multitude of ways that you can find out how your daily actions can have a positive impact on ocean conservation. And just little pictures, if you need any ideas, we've got a, an Oceans Without Borders page, and I have my badge on, which is on our website. And uh, it, it gives you a couple of ideas on how you can make a difference on a daily basis. Uh, but I think one of the key things is educate yourself. Um, there's, there's so much information available. And then everything you learn, everything that you integrate into your daily life, whether, you know, how big or small it is, share that awareness with people around you. And whether that's oceans or terrestrial or economic or whatever that knowledge is, share it and influence the people you engage with. Thanks, Tesla. So I think, yeah, as Fran said, we are all on the same page, which is a good thing. But certainly resilience, diversification, partnerships, collaboration, um, keywords coming out of this COVID uh, crisis. And I wasn't going to end with it, but I'm going to end with a, an African proverb that I, I do love. And I've been using it a, a lot because it, I think it sums up what all five of you said, is that if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And I think as a continent and as a world, we need to all go together now. So thank you all again very, very much. And thank you so much to Anne Beyond for hosting this, this platform and this, this conversation, which I think um, was really valuable. Thank you all and take care. Thank you for listening to Beyond Fireside Chats. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. If you have any comments or feedback, or would like to suggest a topic you'd like to hear us talk about, drop us an email at firesidechats at endbeyond.com. We'd love to hear from you.